Welcome to Science Section. My name is Kian, and I'm bringing you this week's Scientist of the Week segment. For today's interview, I'm going to talk to Berard Denadi, who is a member in the Goldberg Tactile Perception Laboratory. Thanks for coming to our show. It's my pleasure. All right, that's our pleasure. So let's start with some fun questions so our audience can get to know you a bit better. So who is your favorite musician of all time? I don't really have a favorite music okay. to begin with. <laughs> so I don't have any good basis to have some kind of favorite musician. And I don't really dig into the life of musicians. But if I were to go based on which musician I listened most, I guess I go Yiruma. I listen to his stuff pretty frequently. So. All right, cool. And how do you define happiness? So this was supposed to be a fun question, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, d- it's a d- deep, fun question. <laughs> right. I feel like as a neuroscientist, I'm kind of obligated to say that happiness has to do with neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin releasing the brain, but let's not do that. I think <laughs> happiness, I don't know what happiness is, but I think it's fairly correlated with a sense of inner peace. I know when I don't have inner peace, I'm not happy. So I think when I do have inner peace, I'm happy. So Right, okay. That's I don't know awesome. what it is, but... That's, that's yeah. my lead, I guess. <laughs> okay, and if you could meet slash work with any scientist dead or alive, who would it be? If there was a language barrier um, that I had to overcome, or if there was no language barrier, if there was no language barrier, I would go with uh, Ibn al-Haythan. And I don't know if you have heard of him, but Ibn al-Haythan is seen as uh, first, I guess, modern scientist in terms that he was one of the inventors of the scientific method and He's seen as a father of science, father of optics as well. So I think it would be cool to ask him a few questions regarding science and the philosophy of science and how he came up with the scientific method. But if there was a language barrier, then I would go with Einstein because I think he knows English. So right. I go with that. <laughs> All right. That sounds awesome. Uh, so now moving on to your research project right now. So I know you recently graduated from McMaster University uh, from the neuroscience program. And now you're a graduate student at Dr. Goldrake's Tactile Perception Lab. Uh, Can you tell us about your journey to becoming a graduate student and what research slash projects are you currently working on? I can't go to details regarding the research, but I can give you guys a pretty good general idea of what exactly our research entails. And part of it has to do with the question of what is consciousness? It's one of the top three biggest questions of science, you know, if the other two is being like, what are the fundamental particles of the universe and what was before Big Bang? Another big question of science is what is consciousness? And the thing about consciousness uh, compared to other questions is that for other questions, we need to have some uh, sophisticated uh, tools. And we need to look at like 65 billion years before to see what, will ha- what happened before Big Bang. Whereas for consciousness, we have the brain. It's readily available to us, but still it's such a mystery. So I think uh, most of neuroscientists uh, come to the field with that sense of excitement for consciousness. Now for our lab, we particularly look at perception. And as you know, perception is a big, huge part of consciousness as well. And what it means, what what does perception entails? It's a huge question as well. So what Dr. Gorak does in his lab, he's looking at a particular sense, which is tactile touch. And we're trying to see how exactly do we perceive tactile touch and what are the frameworks in which we can, I guess, predict 
human perception. And one of these frameworks is called Bayesian inference or Bayesian framework. And what Bayesian framework, I guess, entails is that it's a, it's a form of probabilistic reasoning that it's commonly used in many applications in science. It's used in uh, finding treasures. It's used in finding cancer. It's used to a lot of applications in medical sciences as well. Uh, what essentially Bayesian inference is, is that it takes your prior belief and then it multiplies it by your data and the likelihood of the data. So it's a combination of your expectations and what you actually see and sense. And, the, and that's what makes it so powerful because it directly brings your expectation in the equation of your perception. And so before we used to think that perception was a bottom-up process, meaning that what you sense, it's what you get from your world in terms of whether it would be like your sensory input from touch, vision, hearing, uh, perceptor, and all this stuff. However, we recently, not, not, not that recently, but we have a sense that it's not only a bottom-up process, but it's also a top-down process in a sense that whatever you have an input, there's also your prior expectation regarding that input. And the reason we know that that probably is the case is because of illusions. When you have auditory illusions, when you have visual illusions, or for example, when you see faces on places that they're, supposed, they're, they're not supposed to be have faces, like you see faces in concrete. What do you see faces in concrete, right? We think this has to devour your prior expectations that if some figures are arranged somewhere, then that would signify a face, right? And that's where the prior comes in. So what Bayesian framework essentially tries to achieve is coming up with a unifying framework to predict human behavior. And that's because we think that human mind probably works in a Bayesian fashion, meaning that we predict what we see. Uh, I don't know if you have heard of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Right. <laughs> uh, we, say, we say, I predict, therefore I am. Meaning prediction is such an ingrained uh, in our brain and in our sense of consciousness that the ability to predict the future is what makes us conscious and what makes us perceive the world outside. When you talk about bias and bringing it into probability, how do we basically quantify biases in human beings? Right. Um, that's an actually really good question. It's a tough question. <laughs> and it depends on the, the research question as well. Usually um, what we do is that we introduce, we create the bias ourselves. Well, there are a few questions that comes in your head. What exactly are biases and how are they formed? Uh, some biases could be biological, meaning they are ingrained in our mind. Some of the biases can be result of your experience of the world. Now, if the bias is result of experience in the world, then what we think is that if we repeatedly exposure someone to a specific stimuli, then their expectation of that stimuli is goes up. So by presenting a novel object in a lab setting, right, that the person doesn't have any prior, that we think the person doesn't have any prior belief or expectation regarding that object because they haven't seen or sensed or smelled it before, we can manipulate their expectation because we are creating that expectation. 
we are creating that prior that goes inside the perception. And based on that, we could do some calculations and we could do some testing. So one way is to create that prior. The other way that a lot of psychologists do is to try to find that prior. Um, again, when it comes to illusions, when it comes to things like, for example, you see whole circles, when you're not supposed to see whole circles or when there, are, there aren't enough information for you to think there's a whole circles. For those questions, it's more qualitative than quantitative because it's hard to really quantitative analyze your prior expectation, but you could have some pretty good idea of what exactly goes to that prior expectation in terms of the quality. What's really interesting to me about uh, this project is that it starts from tactile perception, but the bigger picture here is consciousness. Uh, and it really shows the interdisciplinary nature of neuroscience. I remember for one of my projects, uh, I was looking into uh, the neuroscience of afterlife and basically how consciousness can continue in afterlife if, if it does. Uh, and it's really interesting to see that, oh, something related to philosophy can also relate to tactile perception and for sure other fields of neuroscience. And I think this is what makes neuroscience really cool. You personally, what made you interested in this project? Well, I guess it goes to an innate desire to understand oneself. And I guess consciousness is as close as we get to understanding ourselves. And it goes the same. You want to understand consciousness. And then it's hard to understand consciousness. So we try to understand perception because perception is part of consciousness. As when it comes to perception, well, you could look at the visual system. You could look at the auditory system. You could look at tactile system. The field is so vast that you could do whatever you want. And tactile system seems to be the one that um, I just favor in that case. Awesome. Moving on to you and your student background. Uh, so you were selected to be a Schillick leader when you came to McMaster, and then you chose neuroscience as your major, and now you're doing grad school within Dr. Goldberg's lab. Uh, so what do you think you did differently compared to your peers when you were a student that helped you become who you are today? By no means, I think I'm an accomplished person. Just Let's just put that in the front. But that being said, and I don't want to sound cliche, because it is cliche, but I found that following one's passion is the best way to success and happiness. And part of it is because I think studying is really hard. And I think we can all agree that studying is really difficult, right? And if you're going to spend hours and hours and hours analyzing your research paper, reading about a topic, thinking about a topic, if you don't really have the passion to do it, then it all feels like it's for nothing, right? So I think passion is the key ingredient when it comes to success, because I think passion is what enables you to, to move forward. It's not the only ingredient, but I think it's the crucial ingredient in the, the pot. Right, I totally agree. And I'm sure being at your position right now did not happen easily. A lot of us as students usually get fascinated by success without knowing all the challenges that were faced along the way. So mm -hmm. can you tell us about some of the challenges that you faced as a student? I think you put it really nicely in the sense that you have a goal in mind. And if you're so goal-oriented, that you sometimes, um, you sometimes don't expect the difficulties you see in, in trying to achieve that goal. And the unexpected nature of those difficulties, I think, is what makes it so difficult. 
Whereas I think a sense of expectation in terms of difficulty goes a long way in understanding and in accomplishing things because I think when you understand when you can predict and you can expect difficulties, you can act appropriately. When you don't expect difficulties, when it hits you, it hits you hard, right? But when you expect it, I think you can act appropriately. You can think ahead of time. And you know what? If you think the difficulty is too much, that's fine. That's a valid strategy. Take it slow, right? Manage your difficulty, divide your difficulties, and take it slow, as slow as you can, if it means that that's the best phase, that's the best strategy for you to go forward. And for each person, it's different. And I think for each person, they have to spend the time really thinking about how much difficulty, how much expectation they have regarding their goals. So what kind of advice do you have for students who are listening to this show and similar to you are interested in pursuing research and perception or consciousness? Read a lot. And I think you need to have a good appreciation for science. So I think if you want to go to science in general, I think a healthy dose of understanding of what exactly science is, is always needed. There are a number of books I think are fantastic when it comes to understanding science. And Thomas Cohn is one of those really good writers. And I think you need to have a good sense of what exactly is science? What are the limitations in science? What are the benefits of science? Why, does, why is science so successful in, as a method of understanding truth? So I think a, a fairly small but understandable dose of philosophy of science, I think it's needed to go to the field of science, a healthy appreciation of science to begin with. Now, when you go inside science, it's a matter of just picking your passion. If you think physics is fun, go do science for physics. If you think consciousness is fun, do uh, research in consciousness. But I don't think there's any particular trait that you need for one research that you don't need it for any kind of research. So there is no, I don't think, any particular yeah, trait if you want to become a neuroscientist or if you want to become a physicist or if you want to become a biologist or chemist. And I think they all have a shared appreciation of science, appreciation of the natural world, and passion for them, passion for understanding, and a healthy dose of skepticism. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would appreciate that. So now looking at a bigger picture here about the scientific community. So what do you think our scientific community needs the most right now? I would say open data. And part of it is because recently, over the past year, there have been a few scandals in terms of, unfortunately, scientists uh, misrepresenting data or data that is not complete that goes to the research. And I think as scientists, we have such a huge responsibility in order to find uh, about the mysteries of the world. And the population, the normal human uh, population, usually takes huge, uh, what do you call it? Trust, they have a huge trust in scientific body and in scientists and our research. And if that trust is destroyed or if that trust is not there, then the point of science, I think the point of a lot of scientists who try to make that science and to spread that science as much as possible gets lost. And we see that mistrust in science, uh, especially in our neighbors in the United States, and we see that 
that's becoming a very fairly uh, huge deal. And part of it, I think there has to be is uh, open data, meaning that whenever scientists do the research and when they're trying to publish their research, I think they should also publish their data as well. And I think there are a few advantages. One is that other scientists could use their data or other scientists could check your data and see if your research conclusion is aligned with your data as well. So I think, it, uh, I think science would be much more trustworthy, much, much more fairer if there was a sense of open data, or if there was some kind of like open data database in a sense. Right, especially uh, people's trust in science really matters because we're facing a lot of issues. We can like take a look at it right now with the current pandemic going on. And scientists are the only ones that can help us with it. So the general public trusting scientists is really important. Um, and just to give you the final question for today's interview, if you were a novel, what would you be called and why? I feel like whatever I answer, it sound, it's going to sound cheesy and <laughs> cringe-worthy. Uh, hmm. Maybe a reflection. And I think uh, reflection is one of those things that I really value myself in terms of reflecting on yourself, reflecting on what you have done wrong, what you have done right, and how you can improve yourself. So I think reflection will be the title of that novel. Right, that's awesome. That brings us to the end of this interview. It was really my pleasure to talk to you, to learn more about your research and what you're doing in Dr. Goldrake's uh, Perception Lab. Uh, make sure to check out our social media at SciSection to get updated on our latest events, episode, and interviews.